Hello, and welcome back to Professor Kozlowski Lectures. Today we are finishing up our discussion of the Epic of Gilgamesh by taking our deep dive and looking at the characters, themes, and other literary devices at use in this text. Um, and there's a lot that we could potentially talk about here. I, I, you know, am a little daunted by this particular project, like, both in the historical contextual stuff we talked about last time and in the literary stuff we're talking about this time. Um, there's still a lot I don't know is kind of what it comes down to. What I will say, though, is despite my reservations in the last lecture, I ultimately decided not to make any changes. Um, I did, in fact, get some more materials, do some more research since that lecture, but the fact of the matter is the project that I've kind of taken upon myself, namely to look at Sinmati and Nuni's uh, Epic of Gilgamesh as we have it, you know, in the original 11 tablet version, um, not a whole lot of archaeological discoveries have been too terribly relevant to it specifically. Um, we have more more archaeological discoveries, uh, like I mentioned the Hittite one at uh, Megiddo fairly recently. Um, but while that does inform sort of the, the Epic of Gilgamesh tradition, it doesn't actually tell us much about the, the specific text that we're looking at, namely this Epic of Gilgamesh, the, the 12 tablet, like, you know, 11 tablets plus one tablet, we really can't figure out what the deal is with it, um, version that, that both Gardner and Mayer are looking at, and that is sort of like the, the framework and the standard text that all the rest of the uh, Gilgamesh epic material sort of gets plugged into. Um, the Norton Critical Edition that I did get, by the way, um, it is, as I suspected, a composite text. Um, it uses a lot of the Stand, like it refers to the the eleven tablet version as the the standard version of Gilgamesh, which again is is a bit of a reach. I suspect like whether it was standardized or not is is kind of hard to say. It is standard for us, you know, two thousand three thousand years after the fact when we don't know any better. But it's clear that if this is the text we're going to be working with, then this is the text we should be working with, and not necessarily um, including a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, the critical edition happily does tell us every time that it does sort of insert material from other sources. Um, but And while I do expect to use that for some of our discussion for, for today, at the, at the end of the day, what I'm looking at is Simlechia Nuni's 11 tablet slash 12 tablet version of the Epic of Gilgamesh, looking at it in its specific time and place, um, not and sort of contrasting it rather than just sort of like compositing it with other versions of the Epic of Gilgamesh, like the Hittite version, um, or the other sort of Sumerian, Mesopotamian sources that we've got that tell much of the same story. Um, so the summary that I gave you last time stands. We will discuss it in some detail here. Um, but again, our primary goal here is to look at what specifically Sinleki Anuni is doing. Um, the 12 tablets slash 11 tablets that I'm going to keep going back and forth on those numbers. Um, the, the edition that is sort of like the biggest version of this text, the most robust and full version that we have, um, because it's like the only one that we actually have enough of to do literary analysis on without relying heavily on other authors, other sources, other thinking. Um, so it, it's it, we're going to be threading the needle here is kind of what it comes down to. We're, we're going to talk about the composite edition. We're going to talk about some of the things that the standard edition, the standard epic doesn't include. Um, but our primary focus here is what is Sinleki Anuni doing? What does that particular version of the Epic of Gilgamesh tell us? 
Um, so with that in mind, let's start with our big picture overviews. Let's talk characters, let's talk actual events, stuff that happens, you know, basic stuff here. Um, and obviously to do that we have to start with, you know, Gilgamesh! Like, he's kind of the biggest hero here, obviously the epic is named after him. Um, he's clearly the central character and, and we're meant to sort of examine him primarily here. Um, and the first thing I want to address because it is kind of an open question, as far as I can tell, um, is, does Gilgamesh change? Um, obviously, like, when we talk about the, the Epic of Gilgamesh, especially in this 11-tablet slash 12-tablet version, um, I find that most scholars are dividing it in half. Six tablets on one half, six tablets on the other. Um, Mayer and Gardner specifically refer to this as the Apollonian and Dionysian distinction, borrowing from Nietzsche's The Birth of Tragedy. Um, not because, you know, those terms apply explicitly here. Obviously, they refer to Greek mythology, not, you know, Sumerian slash Babylonian slash Akkadian, etc. Um, but because the, the fundamental themes of sort of civilization and savagery very much do divide up the text here. Um, the first half of the text is very much about a civilized, happy, optimistic Gilgamesh um, going on adventures with his best pal Enkidu, doing cool stuff like beating up Humbaba and the Bull of Heaven, um, and, you know, not dwelling too deeply on the great primordial mysteries of the universe. But in the back half, that's very much the focus. Once Enkidu dies, Gilgamesh wrestles with his own mortality, has this sort of existential horror of dying. Like, it's this whole thing. Um, so, on the one hand, we have to recognize the focus of the text does change dramatically halfway through the text. Once Enkidu is condemned to death by Ishtar and Enlil, the text takes a rather dramatic hard turn. Um, and we need to recognize that, like, the focus of the first half of the text and the focus of the second half of the text are very, very different, despite the fact that they are unified into this one sort of composite story. Um, and again, we should also note that most of the myths, the individual Sumerian myths that this text is drawing from, at least as far as we have them, since we don't know if they were part of bigger texts at some point. Again, it's very, very fragmentary, as is everything we're talking about with the whole Sumerian-Babylonian tradition. Um, since we only have these fragments, it's entirely possible that this like composite, overarching story just doesn't exist. Um, in any earlier version. Simleki Yanuni may be the first one to sort of try and weave a story that includes all of these elements, all of these events, all of these little details and focuses in Gilgamesh's life. Um, it could very well be that, you know, once upon a time, Gilgamesh and Humbaba was the whole story, and then Gilgamesh going into the underworld was the whole story. Um, we obviously have a version of what is for the Akkadian, for Sinleki and Nuni, Tablet 12, as a Sumerian text, this whole Gilgamesh Enkidu in the underworld, where the focus really is, you know, Gilgamesh and Enkidu go into the underworld, and that's the end of the story. Like, that's all we need to know here. Um, so already we're looking at a certain degree of complexity in the structure of the text just by seeing that Gilgamesh has a lot to do here. Um, and Gilgamesh's activities are going to take these sorts of, these two very divergent kind of forms. On the one hand, doing big epic heroic deeds. On the other hand, embarking into the netherworld in what John Mayer calls a dark night of the soul. Um, so, on the one hand, 
yes, Gilgamesh does change. Gilgamesh goes on this quest with Enkidu. Gilgamesh goes on this quest to find Enkidu. He comes back a changed person. Uh, but I want to focus more directly on the very beginning of the text. One of the, thing that, one of the things that a lot of scholars have made much of, and that is a big deal in the extra mythology videos, um, is that Gilgamesh is kind of a jerk at the beginning of this text. Um, in the, the just the first tablet, like we get this description of Gilgamesh and how there are um, quite a few people angry about him. Like this is why Enkidu is created in the first place. Um, scholars are kind of unsure what exactly the reason for this unhappiness is. Um, it, it's not entirely clear. On the one hand, the first column of the first tablet very much emphasizes Gilgamesh is freaking awesome. Um, we'll come back around to the very opening introductory stuff in a little bit when we approach the themes. Um, but it is very much emphasized at the end of the tablet in Gardner's translation, um, Gilgamesh endured everything harsh, line 26. Overpowering kings, famous, powerfully built, hero, child of the city Uruk, a budding bull. He takes the forefront as a leader should. Still he marches in the rear as one of the brothers trust, a mighty trap to prevent to protect his men. He is a battering flood wave who knocks the stone walls flat. A little further down they go on. Opener of the mountain passes, digger of wells on the hillside. He crossed the ocean, the wide sea, to where Shamash rises. Scouted the world regions, the one who seeks life. Forcing his way to Utnapishtim, the remote one. The man who restored life where the flood had destroyed it. Is there a king like him anywhere? The tablet concludes. Um, who like Gilgamesh can boast, I am king? So, obviously, Gilgamesh is a big deal, and right from the very beginning of this text, we're meant to respect and admire him. Um, it's obvious that, like, his legacy far is, is very well known, even at the time that Sinlaki Anuni is writing. You know, we're talking about a Heracles-style, like, just awesome-at-everything kind of hero here. Um, but a lot of scholars kind of emphasize that he starts as a jerk and sort of develops, matures, however, through the various process. And we, as modern readers, are very inclined to that story. We like our arcs. Um, so in column two, it's very much emphasized that there's some weird stuff going on here. Um, this is around line 11 or 12. Gilgamesh does not allow the son to go with his father. Day and night he oppresses the weak. Gilgamesh, who is shepherd of Uruk of the sheepfold, is this our shepherd, strong, shining, full of thought? Gilgamesh does not let the young woman go to her mother, the girl to the warrior, the bride to the young groom. The gods hear their lamentation. The gods of the above address the keeper of Uruk. Did you not make this mighty wild bull? The raising of his weapon has no equal. With the drum his citizens are raised. He, Gilgamesh, keeps the sun from his father day and night. Is this the shepherd of Uruk of the sheepfold? Is this their shepherd and some of the text is lost, strong, shining, full of thought. Gilgamesh does not let the young woman go to her mother, the girl to the warrior, the bride to the young groom. Now, Notice the text is kind of ambivalent here. It's going back and forth. On the one hand, we have this problem. Gilgamesh is apparently guilty of two things that people are upset about. Namely, he does not allow the son to go with his father, um, and he does not let the young woman go to her mother, the girl to the warrior, the bride to the young group. Um, some commentators have speculated that the first thing about not letting the son go to the father means that Gilgamesh is raising armies regularly for potentially frivolous conflicts and battles. 
Um, Gilgamesh may or may not have an ego on him, and may in fact be like uh, drafting people unnecessarily into these wars that they don't want to fight. Um, so that's one potential problem. But the bigger one, the one that people tend to get more upset about is the second thing. Gilgamesh does not let the young woman go to her mother, the girl to the warrior, the bride to the young groom. Um, again, Mayer and several other scholars have speculated that this means that he's taking advantage of his right as lord to sleep with a bride on her wedding night. Again, prima noctis, as the, the medievals would have it. Um, and we talked about this a little bit in the last lecture, so I don't want to get too deep into it here. Um, suffice it to say, this makes people mad, and it would be understandable. That's why scholars tend to, you know, interpret it that way, um, that people would be upset with Gilgamesh for doing this on a regular basis. Like, yes, Gilgamesh has the right to do this. He is a super awesome king. He is crazy powerful. Nonetheless, he's kind of a jerk for, for taking advantage of people in this particular way. Um, so as a consequence, people cry out, the gods hear them, and they ultimately create Enkidu um, as, as his sort of foil here, which we'll come back to Enkidu in its own time. Um, so the question then is, is Gilgamesh a bad dude, and does this epic involve an arc where he learns to be a better person? Um, and it's kind of really hard to say that here. Like, again, much as our modern sensibilities tend us to interpret in that way, we love our stories of, like, flawed heroes learning to overcome, you know, their deficiencies and become better people. Like, we all want the redemption arc where Gilgamesh starts as an awful tyrant and grows into a really decent human being slash really good king. It's not quite clear that that's all that's happening here. Like, it, it, it doesn't seem to be a terribly great priority for the Mesopotamian writers and for Sinleki and Nuni especially. Um, it's present, like this is in fact a problem, but it's not something that ever really gets specifically redressed at, throughout the course of the text. Like Gilgamesh does kind of change, his opinions do change, his attitudes do change, but usually not having all that much to do with these specific issues. Like when Gilgamesh in fact meets Enkidu, originally they fight and then they embrace his brothers and then they're cool and it does it's not like Gilgamesh learns a lesson oh I was a terrible person and now I gotta sleep stop sleeping with brides on their wedding nights like that's not really a thing um, as much as you know even Enkidu gets upset about this when he is first civilized and hears that Gilgamesh is doing this like he gets really upset and apparently goes to Gilgamesh if this is resolved, then it's a resolved in a section that we don't necessarily have a great like text for. This is somewhere in Tablet 2, which is largely lost and broken. Um, but on the other hand, I should emphasize, if it's resolved in Tablet 2, it's not a huge deal for the Mesopotamians if it's literally introduced in Tablet 1, resolved in Tablet 2, and then we got ten more tablets to go. Like This is not a consistent issue throughout the text. If Gilgamesh changes, he changes rapidly, and, and therefore, you know, is already on to heroic deeds by Tablets 3 and 4. It's, it's not really a big deal, as far as the authors seem to, seem to think. Um, now, as far as other problems are concerned, like, Gilgamesh does have a hubris problem, that's for sure, especially in the back half of the text. 
Um, we see him picking a fight with Ishtar, though it's not really clear exactly why that's a problem. We'll talk about that more when we actually get to talking about Ishtar. Um, he definitely thinks that he can overcome like all of the obstacles and become immortal by you know visiting with Utnapishtim, um, and that you know that too is ambivalent here. Um, the text doesn't seem to have a whole lot of criticism for Gilgamesh's hubris, because on the one hand, like, Gilgamesh is that awesome. He does, in fact, overcome obstacles that no human being should be able to overcome. Like, in uh, Tablet 10, when everyone is, is reassuring him, or, or, like, kind of rebuffing him, you know, he talks to the Scorpion Men in Tablet 9, they're like, dude, you cannot possibly go visit the Underworld, that's not, you know, for you, only gods can do that, and he's like, eh, I'm two-thirds god, what are you gonna do? And he goes, and he does it. And then he meets with the barmaid. The barmaid's like, hey, you're chasing after this nonsense. You're never going to succeed at this. And he's like, eh, I'm going to do it anyway. And he does. Um, like four or five times in this text, Gilgamesh is told from the outset that he is going to fail, that none of this is going to work, that the next step of the journey is not possible for him, and he does it anyway. Now, admittedly, he does fail. And that's kind of what I mean by the text is sort of ambivalent on this. On the one hand, Gilgamesh is accomplishing truly impressive deeds, stuff that no human being should be able to do. The fact that he gets to Utnapishtim is frankly flabbergasting. Like, as far as, you know, Heracles obviously spends some time in the underworld, like he takes Cerberus and, you know, helps Theseus out and does whole bunches of stuff in the Greek underworld. But you very much get the sense here that like, the Greek underworld and the Babylonian underworld, similar as they may be in some ways, have a very major difference insofar as nobody goes to the Babylonian underworld. Like, in the whole Babylon of Babylonian mythology, there are literally two figures who get to go to the underworld. One is Ishtar, and she's a god, and then the other is Gilgamesh, and it literally is, is framed here as though he closes the door behind him. Like, after he meets with Utnapishtim, after he gets lectured by Shamash, he goes back across the River of the Dead, and Urshanabi is not going to be taking anybody else ashore. Like, it is now impassable, in part because Gilgamesh screwed things up and broke all of the stone things and the snake things, um, but also because it's just explicitly forbidden by the, by the gods. Like, Gilgamesh gets way farther in his epic quest to achieve immortality than anyone has any reasonable prospect of being able to do. Like, the gods are repeatedly shocked at how far Gilgamesh gets in his journey. And Gilgamesh gets really freaking close. Like, he gets the magic plant that could make him in immortal. He definitely does talk to Utnapishtim, who has somehow achieved immortality. But at the end of the day, Gilgamesh screws up. Um, but, like, he loses the plant, he doesn't actually, you know, get some magic of immortality from Utnapishtim. At the end of the day, both are true. Gilgamesh did overcome obstacles he had no business overcoming, and he did, at the end of the day, fail in his quest to become immortal or to rescue Enkidu from, from the underworld. So, again, it's tricky here. Like, we who... In the, again, in the modern age, we kind of have these expectations for what these sorts of stories are supposed to look like. Like, we expect either the Orpheus version of the story where Orpheus descends into the underworld and we know from the outset that he is doomed and there's no way he's coming back with his wife intact. 
Or we want the Hercules version, where he does in fact descend into the underworld, where he does in fact accomplish his quest, and where he proves that in fact all of fate, all of reality can stand against him, and it doesn't matter, he's that awesome, Heracles becomes apotheosized. Gilgamesh rides that line and is not willing to plant its feet on either one terribly convincingly. Like, if Gilgamesh errs, it's erring on the side of Orpheus. At the end of the day, this is kind of a downer ending. Um, Gilgamesh does not successfully achieve immortality. He does not successfully rescue Enkidu. He does not successfully, like, overcome the limits of human mortality. Um, so, you know, on that end, we kind of are like, invited to reflect and think about our own mortality. But on the other hand, you've got to emphasize he got really freaking close. Um, way closer than Orpheus did. Um, as much as the whole, like, pathos of the Orpheus story is, you know, he got that close to rescuing his wife, and then at the very last minute turned around and screwed it all up, and, you know, it's heartbreaking to hear, like, this version of the tale, Notice that Gilgamesh has a bigger project in mind. Like, yeah, he does want to rescue Enkidu, and notice he doesn't get anywhere near to rescuing Enkidu. Like, that's not even on the table in this story. Um, but he does come back with a plan that wouldn't just make him immortal, but would make everyone in Uruk immortal. Um, Gilgamesh is going for something way more than Orpheus is going for. Like, his quest is way bigger and would have way greater consequences. And... The fact that he fails seems like almost an accident. Like, just dumb luck that that serpent happened to be there when he when Gilgamesh took off his clothes to take his bath. Um, so I want to sort of recognize that. The Babylonians are definitely emphasizing the same moral as the Orpheus story. You can't overcome fate. Like, we'll talk about that in, in more detail later. Um, but talking about Gilgamesh in terms of hubris seems weird here. A little out of place. Um, quite a few commentators sort of apply this concept to Gilgamesh, but I'm really reluctant to read it that way. Um, does Gilgamesh have a tragic flaw? No, not really. Not in the way that most of our Greek stories would have, or the way that Aristotle would point out, or the way that most modern interpreters would, would tend to, to look at this. Um, Gilgamesh is not tragically flawed. Gilgamesh gets really close, but, you know, he is at the end of the day human. And that's the point here. Um, so with that in mind, we also need to recognize that Gilgamesh, weird as it may be to say, is very much representative of humanity, of civilization especially here. Um, obviously, talking about Gilgamesh, like it, it, we have to recognize, A, he's coming from a big Babylonian city, namely Uruk. He is the king of that city. What His major contribution to that city is that he built this really impressive series of walls. Um, and notice that the opening of the text also emphasizes a number of his other public works projects. Like, he's the guy who dug the wells. He's the guy who made the clay pits. He's the guy who built the walls of Uruk. Like, obviously, Gilgamesh is associated with civilization, with building stuff, with, you know, urbanization in general, at least, you know, as far as urbanization goes in 2700 BCE, mind you. Um, but that's in direct contrast to Enkidu. Um, frequently, Gilgamesh and Enkidu were contrasted in this sort of civilization versus savagery perspective. Again, that kind of Apollonian-Dionysian distinction that Mayer is talking about here, though understood very broadly. Um, especially because we have to recognize, you know, where does Enkidu come from here? Um, it's very much emphasized that, like, 
when Gilgamesh is in fact ticking people off for whatever reason, which we can't quite figure out, um, Enkidu is created as a perfect sort of foil for him. Enkidu is as strong as Gilgamesh. Enkidu is like as divine as Gilgamesh. Enkidu is a good match for him, both in the sense of like as a competitor and also as a helper and a friend, as it ultimately turns out to be. Um, but notice the major difference between the two is that Gilgamesh is always associated with cities, with buildings, with civilizations, whereas Enkidu starts being 100% associated with the wild. Um, so again, one of the things that we need to sort of recognize about Enkidu is he is literally dropped in by the gods and his immediate sort of habits and behaviors are to be like animals. Um, so notice the creation of Enkidu passage. This is line 33 in tablet 1, column 2. When Aruru heard this, she formed an image of Anu in her heart. Aruru washed her hands, pinched off clay, and threw it into the wilderness. In the wilderness, she made Enkidu the fighter. She gave birth in darkness and silence to one like the war god Ninurta. His whole body was covered thickly with hair, his head covered with hair like a woman's. The locks of his hair grew abundantly like those of the grain god Nisaba. He knew neither people nor homeland. He was clothed in the clothing of Sumuquan, the cattle god. He fed with the gazelles on grass, with the wild animals he drank at water holes. With hurrying animals, his heart grew light in the waters. Notice, he's hanging out with the animals. He is totally fraternizing with them. He is eating with them. He is drinking with them. Obviously, the text is not very clear about whether Enkidu is committing bestiality or not, but it, if he is, in fact, having sex, you, gotta, you better believe he's doing it with the animals. Enkidu is described here more beast than man. He is hairy, covered with hair, thus emphasizing his sort of savagery and, and lack of civilization. Um, his garments, if we read that line correctly, is apparently he is wearing like leather from Subukon, the cattle god. So he's either like buck naked or he's wearing actual leather, like a hide that he stripped from some animal, probably a cow. Um, he is not at all civilized and stands in direct contrast with Gilgamesh. And this is emphasized, too, when they both start picking a fight with Ishtar. Um, this is in column, or Tablet 7, I believe, when Ishtar, or no, Tablet 6, um, where Ishtar and uh, Gilgamesh are having a bit of a fight... Um, notice that Ishtar apparently, we'll get to that when we get to Ishtar, ticks off Gilgamesh and Enkidu for whatever reason, and both of them react to her in different ways appropriate to their character. So Gilgamesh, for example, you get this long speech where Gilgamesh is like, I'm not going to have sex with you, I'm not going to hang out with you, you're untrustworthy, you're dodgy, um, you have betrayed many others before me and are therefore not somebody that I'm interested in having. Like, he insults Ishtar to her face, which leads Ishtar to like, fling the bull of heaven on them, and, you know, we get another epic battle against another epic creature. But notice that at the end of that encounter, once the, once the um, bull of heaven is actually defeated, Enkidu's response is to insult Ishtar as well. But while he is, but he isn't as nearly as erudite as Gilgamesh is, Gilgamesh insults Ishtar with poetry. Enkidu insults Ishtar by literally tearing out the thigh of the Bull of Heaven and throwing it in her face. This is line 161 in column 5 of, of uh, Tablet 6, or rather, 
uh, line 161 of Tablet 6. They do the enumeration differently on 6, 11, and 12, I want to say. Uh, but we'll come back around to that. Um, so again, the emphasis here is that the two of them have radically different characters. Gilgamesh is refined. He is distinguished. He is very civilized. Enkidu is bestial, savage, violent, physical. Um, and this is consistent about the two throughout. In some ways, it seems that Enkidu is the stronger of the two men, but Gilgamesh is the smarter of the two men. However, even that isn't quite so clear. Like, as much as I've been emphasizing Enkidu's animal-like qualities, we also have to recognize that Enkidu loses those qualities pretty quickly. Uh, like, shortly after Enkidu shows up in Tablet 1, Column 2, the stalker, like, whoever the hunter guy is who, who's hanging out in the woods, notices that Enkidu's, like, eating all his food, destroying his traps, filling up his pits, basically causing trouble. The stalker, too, has, like, one foot in the civilized world and one foot in the, the wilds. Um, so Enkidu, as a wild man, presents a problem to him. So their solution is that they go to Gilgamesh, they complain about him, and Gilgamesh sends a temple prostitute, a priestess, which I don't want to get into that. Like, it, it is widely accepted that there are, in fact, temple prostitutes in ancient Babylon. Like, there's a whole weird set of, like, stigmas and mis and misunderstandings in the whole history of this practice, largely because most of the perspectives we have on temple priestesses who have sex with patrons comes from the Bible, which is really, really, really critical of this practice. Um, so on the one hand, calling them temple prostitutes seems a little misleading, because again, we're sort of um, imposing that negative connotation from the Old Testament onto this practice. But calling them just a priestess obviously doesn't do the job either, because clearly she's here to have sex with Enkidu. So let's call her a temple prostitute, I guess. Split the difference one way or the other. Recognize that this isn't necessarily a negative profession or something. Um, but I'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit um, when we like get to her role in this whole business as well. Um, notice, though, that the key change here, the key thing that, like, this love priestess, this temple prostitute has to do, is she sleeps with Enkidu, and Enkidu is transformed as a consequence. Now, I actually want to read this passage because it's really fascinating from a stylistic standpoint, um, and John Gardner's translation here is just absolute aces. Um, this is line 15 on column 4 of, of tablet 1. The courtesan untied her wide belt and spread her legs, and he struck her wildness like a storm. So we get a pretty graphically sexual opening to this passage. And on the one hand, um, Gardner and Mayer both emphasize here that this is euphemistic language. Like, it is way more graphically euphemistic than we're used to from ancient texts in many cases, but nonetheless, it is euphemistic. Like, he took her like a storm. You know, it's very metaphorical in that sense. Um, but notice, too, her behavior. She was not shy. She took his wind away. Her clothing she spread out, and he lay upon her. She made him know, the man as he was, what a woman is. His body lay on her. Six days and seven nights Enkidu attacked, fucking the priestess. 
Now, I should emphasize I didn't include, like, add the word fuck in here. That's literally Gardner's translation. Um, and Mayer even makes, makes a note of it in the annotations. He stresses that this passage starts euphemistic. He took her like a storm and gets gradually less euphemistic until it becomes graphic and even crass that fucking the priestess is exactly the correct translation here. There is a sharp left turn in the way that the language is presented. But notice a couple of emphases here. On the one hand, notice it starts euphemistic. It starts as, you know, she spreads her legs and he struck her like a storm. So we're talking about violent sexuality here, but a violent sexuality that isn't defined by Enkidu's bestiality. Instead, it's defined by her willingness to play him, and in fact defined by her taking his breath away. Enkidu attacks her, and she instead transforms him. But notice what exactly is done here. She made him know, the text says, the man as he was, what a woman is. And it goes on to emphasize, after Enkidu was glutted on her richness, he set his face toward his animals. Seeing him, Enkidu, the gazelles scattered, wheeling. The beasts of the wilderness fled from his body. Enkidu tried to rise up, but his body pulled back. His knees froze. His animals had turned from him. Enkidu grew weak. He could not gallop as before, yet he had knowledge. Wider mind. Turned around, Enkidu knelt at the knees of the prostitute. He looked up at her face, and as the woman spoke, his ears heard. The woman said to him, to Enkidu, You have become wise, like a god, Enkidu. Why did you range the wilderness with animals? Come, let me lead you to the heart of Uruk of the Sheepfold, to the stainless house, holy place of Anu and Ishtar, where Gilgamesh lives, completely powerful, and like a wild bull stands supreme, mounted above his people. Notice this transformation is, on the one hand, sexual, like very obviously, very, like, unquestionably sexual, even grotesquely sexual by the end of that depiction here. But it is, as much as it is, it starts with Enkidu's attack, it immediately continues with the priestess taking over the situation. And it ends with Enkidu quite thoroughly defeated, turned into something else. He is no longer friends with the animals. The animals turn their back on him. And what's more, he has somehow achieved wisdom. Now, the temple prostitute emphasizes, you have become wise like a god, and we should absolutely be thinking, like, wow, this sounds suspiciously like serpent language in Genesis 1-3, to um, but that's another conversation for another day here. Clearly, something has changed. Enkidu can no longer go back to being savage, to being with the animals. Now that he has been with a woman, this change has transformed him. He is now wise like a god. It isn't sin in that sense, like no concept of this is, is present here on the text, but it is irrevocable nonetheless. Notice, too, the language that she mentions, why did you range the wilderness with animals? This is actually a constant refrain in this text. Enkidu starts ranging with the animals, and we'll see, as the text goes on, when Gilgamesh has, in fact, lost Enkidu and is going to search for him by trying to find the underworld, he is frequently described as ranging in the wilderness. The same term is used here. The same language is used here. Um, 
so on the one hand, there is a clear contrast. Enkidu is the wild man who becomes human, where Gilgamesh is the human, civilized man who becomes wild. Um, so this irrevocability is on the one as on the one hand something to be lamented. Enkidu can't go back to the way things were before. He cannot return to innocence, so to speak. But on the other hand, this is a good transformation. And when Gilgamesh goes the other direction, this is seen as something bad. What's more, we do in fact get some discussion from Enkidu later. Like Enkidu in, in uh, Tablet 7 has, you know, now that he has been cursed by Enlil and Ishtar and he's, he's doomed to die, his gut reaction, this is column 3 of Tablet 7, is to curse the prostitute who converted him. His heart urged him to curse the temple prostitute, the woman, he begins on line 5. Listen, woman, I will decree your fate, a destiny that will have no end and will last forever. I will curse you with a great curse, and a rush the throw stick will strike you. Your hungers will never be satisfied. You will love the child who beats you. And we get a fragmentary passage that is equally nasty. You become slave woman, you will wallow in the mud, you will be polluted, the road will be your dwelling place, the shadow of the wall will be your resting place, the drunk and the thirsty will strike your cheek. So Enkidu, when he starts to die, starts by blaming the temple prostitute for civilizing him and causing this all to happen. Um, his initial response is, I would have been better off remaining as an animal, remaining ignorant, remaining un uninformed and, and unacquainted with all of these weird civilized behaviors. But it's important to note that Enkidu is immediately rebuffed. Um, and in fact, it's Shamash who responds to him on line 33. Shamash heard, opened his mouth, and from afar, from the heavens, called to him, Why, Enkidu, do you curse the love priestess, the woman who would feed you with the food of the gods, and would have you drink wine that is the drink of kings, and would clothe you in a great garment, and would give you beautiful Gilgamesh as a companion? Listen, hasn't Gilgamesh, your beloved friend, made you lie down in a great bed? Hasn't he made you lie down in a bed of honor and placed you on the peaceful seat of his left hand? The world's kings have kissed your feet. He will make the people of Uruk weep for you, cause them to grieve you, will make the women, the whole city, fill up with sorrow for your sake. And afterward he will carry the signs of grief on his own body, putting on the skin of dogs and ranging the wilderness. Enkidu listened to the words of Shamash the warrior, and his angry heart grew still, grew quiet. And he goes on in, at the beginning of column four to not take back his curse. Apparently that's not something that you can do in the Babylonian tradition. But instead blessing the temple prostitute as a sort of compensation. May you, priestess, return to your rightful place. May gods, kings, and princes love you. Let no one strike his thigh because of you. Let it be that no one, no old one shakes his hair because of you. Let the one who embraces you uncover his treasure for you. He will give you carnelian, lapis, and gold. May the one who sleeps with you pay well. And something about jism out of his storehouse? I love Gardner's translation so much. May you enter the presence of the gods. May the mother of seven be abandoned for your sake. Now, there are a couple of things that we need to emphasize about this whole passage, because it is truly fascinating, and, you know, I was hoping to talk about it at some length later, but we're just going to talk about it now, because it's fascinating stuff. On the one hand, we have to recognize that Enkidu's mind has been changed here. Again, his gut reaction was, crap, I never should have 
you know, slept with that temple prostitute. I never should have become civilized. I never should have become wise. It's only proven to be misery for me now that I'm going to die. But Shamash immediately turns around and tells Enkidu, no, it wasn't a bad thing. Think of all the good things that have happened as a result of this. And notice what Shamash emphasizes. You've been able to feed or to eat with the food of the gods, drink with the drink of kings, clothe you in a great garment, and have a companion in Gilgamesh. Like Shamash emphasizes, civilization isn't bad. There's a lot of advantages to it. You get sweet food, you get sweet drinks, you get to lie in big fluffy beds, you get to be friends with people instead of just having this sort of animalistic antagonism. Like, again, the Babylonians aren't terribly interested in, you know, animal societies or social structures or anything like that. Notice, too, that he emphasizes how much honor that Enkidu has received since becoming more human, since becoming wise. Gilgamesh has given him a bed of honor, placed you on the peaceful seat of his left hand, and what's more, he will have the people of Uruk weep for you, cause them to grieve you. Enkidu notices his death as an animal would have gone unnoticed, would have been a product of the natural world, nobody would have mourned him, that's just the way things are. But now that he is a human, now that he has been humanized by this temple priestess, he is more than that. People care about him. People will mourn his loss. He has honor that will endure past his own lifespan. These are the advantages of civilization, as far as Shamash tells him. So Enkidu responds by blessing the prostitute. And notice, both the curse and the blessing are descriptive of prostitution generally. At the same time as this is a text about Enkidu, you know, being in a snit and having his mind changed by divine intervention, this is also one of those explanation texts. This is why prostitutes are treated the way that they are, in a sense, as far as the, the Mesopotamians, the Babylonians, are concerned. And notice, Enkidu's curse holds. There are going to be prostitutes who are cursed with a great curse, who will be struck by the throw stick, whose hungers are never satisfied, and whose children whose children hate them, who wallow in the mud, who lie in the street, who sleep in the shadow of the wall, who are struck, beaten by the drunk and the thirsty. But the payoff for all of this suffering and misery is there are going to be gods and kings and princes who throw their lives away for your sake, who give you swanky gifts, who, you know, abandon the gods for the sake of these beautiful women. Um, and who is his description of prostitution hasn't changed much in, you know, 4,000 years here. All of his description here, both the positive and the negative, continue to describe both the advantages and disadvantages of sex work to this day. Um, obviously, these are more traditional than sex work in a contemporary setting. I don't want to get into the details there. But notice that for a Babylonian, for a Mesopotamian audience, they would have seen that Enkidu's language here has force. It is in much the same way as when God curses the serpent to slither on its belly or curses the woman to have pain in childbirth. It's effective. Enkidu says this, and this is how it's going to be from now on. This is how temple prostitutes are going to be treated. They will definitely suffer a great deal and frequently be beaten and homeless, but they will also occasionally be able to win great honor and be able to tear families apart and to make great kings and princes bow to them. Um, 
But notice too that it's Shamash who, who makes the, the change here. Um, now that we've talked about Gilgamesh and Enkidu, at least their characters to some degree, I want to turn our attention to the gods. Because there are a lot of them, they're confusing in many ways, they are not familiar to us the way that the Greek gods are. Um, I don't want to talk about all of them, like there's a lot of gods in here and I don't want to like address every single one of them. I want to cover a few main gods, goddesses, etc. Um, that we do run into and that do have particular resonance and thematic significance for this text. And Shamash is right where I want to start. Um, one of the things that I really need to emphasize though is that Shamash, Shamash gets an upgrade for this text. Shamash is almost never mentioned in any of the original Gilgamesh myths in the Sumerian. These are almost all additions by Sinleki Anuni. Um, and especially this very passage that we were reading here, Tablet 7, Column 3, where Shamash is advising Enkidu, nothing like this is present in Gilgamesh and Humbaba or any of the other mythological traditions. This is all purely Sinleki Anuni editions. What's more, many of the times that other gods feature significantly in the myths, Sinleki Anuni will kick them out and bring Shamash in to do the, these things instead. So it's clear that Shamash is an ascendant god. Um, and I should emphasize this. Like, we've talked about it a little bit in some of my other lectures. If you followed all of my mythology lectures, you probably heard me talk about this a little bit, um, especially in Egyptian mythology. The Egyptians are, like, either the best or the worst at this. Um, gods fall in and out of favor in mythological traditions. Um, like, after, you know, everybody's been worshipping, like, Brahma and Shiva for a long time, the new run of Hindu gods like um, Vishnu suddenly become super popular and they're the ones that everybody's telling stories about. Um, in the Greek mythological traditions, it used to be the case that Dionysus was a huge deal. He kind of gets downgraded and Apollo gets an upgrade, hence the, that Apollonian-Dionysian distinction that Nietzsche is talking about. Well, what's more, after Apollo is super awesome, he gets downgraded and Hermes becomes super awesome with the likes of Hermes Trimagistus and the early alchemists and the mystery religions. Like, gods fall in and out of favor. This is just how mythologies, world religions tend to work. Um, like, even in Christianity, you could make a case that, you know, God the Father falls out of favor in favor of God the Son. And for that matter, Jesus kind of falls out of favor in the Renaissance to be supplanted largely with the Virgin Mary for quite a while. Um, so, this is normal. Um, but what I want to emphasize is what Sinleki Anuni is doing with Shamash here. If Shamash is the new cool god on the block that Sinleki Anuni is trying to convince everyone that, like, yeah, forget about, you know, all those weird old gods. Instead, let's talk about Shamash and how awesome Shamash is. Shamash does seem to be playing a very similar role to Apollo in the Greek tradition. Shamash is, and has been for a long time, the sun god. Um, he is the god of light, he is the god of, you know, the sun, that's all pretty standard. But what is worth noting here is that Shamash is identified with two other really important elements in this text. Namely, Shamash hangs out in the underworld, which is kind of mind-blowing if you were familiar with the ancient Greeks. Like, oh my gosh, what is the sun god doing in the underworld? That's Hades' realm. It's all dark there. You know, what? how does that uh, make any sense? But notice it's very much emphasized over and over again. When Gilgamesh goes to the underworld, when he goes to the netherworld, it is frequently described as Shamash's realm. Um, this is the place where Shamash goes while the sun is not in the sky. 
um, Shamash resides in the underworld and only visits human beings when the sun is up. Um, this is how the Babylonians understand the way that the sun and moon and, you know, the underworld work. Um, so on the one hand, Shamash is, you know, Apollo-esque. He is wise and civilized and bright and brings logic and reason to people, as he does here with Enkidu, like, dude, don't curse the temple prostitute. Think of all the good things she's done for you. Think of all the advantages of civilization, which I, Shamash, kind of am emphasizing and standing in for. Uh, like Apollo, he's the prophecy guy. He's the civilization guy. He's the light guy. All that comes together. But on the other hand, Shamash is bigger than this. Where Apollo is just the civilization guy, is just the newcomer on the block, Shamash is both old and new. And both his old and new characteristics kind of come into attention here. Shamash is the guy who gives lots of wisdom and, and who very much like tells Enkidu about the advantages of civilization. But Shamash is also the mysterious figure at the end of the universe who seems to be the guardian and the protector of the great mysteries of the world. In some sense, Shamash is kind of two-sided in this way, is bigger than Apollo, is almost more contradictory than Apollo. Um, Shamash is the god of reason and revelation, but Shamash is also the god of, god of mystery and hiddenness. He is the god of light and the god of dark. Um, Simlaki Anuni seems to be making Shamash out to be a pretty fascinating, multifaceted figure here. Um, and we need to recognize that this is probably a new development. Some of these characteristics are old, some of these characteristics are new. Shamash's residence in the underworld? Probably an old thing. Shamash's going around giving advice to people? Probably a new thing. Um, so Shamash is becoming more robust in that sense. And to sort of complement this, we have to talk about Ishtar. Um, Ishtar's weird in this text. Um, this is also Ishtar, who is frequently known as Inanna, like her older name in the Sumerian was Inanna. The Akkadians seem to refer to her pretty exclusively as Ishtar, so we're going to be calling her Ishtar here as well. Um, Ishtar seems to be the god on the decline, if Shamash is the god on the ascendancy. And quite a few scholars have emphasized that the, most of, most of uh, Sinlaki Anuni's references to Ishtar are actually pretty negative. Uh, like, obviously, we get that whole dispute with Ishtar that I mentioned before, where both Gilgamesh and Enkidu have beef with her, where they both insult her. Um, so notice what Gilgamesh actually has to say about Ishtar in Tablet 6, Column 1. To Gilgamesh's beauty, great Ishtar lifted her eyes. Come, Gilgamesh, be my lover. Give me the taste of your body. Would that you were my husband and I your wife. And she goes on trying to flatter him and impressing him and like basically bribing and trying to seduce him. Gilgamesh responds, this is around line 23, What could I give you if I should take you as a wife? What, would I give you oil for the body and fine wrappings? Would I give you bread and victuals, you who eat food of the gods, you who drink wine fit for royalty? For you they pour out libations, you are clothed with the great garment. Ah, the gap between us, if I take you in marriage. You're a cooking fire that goes out in the cold, a back door that keeps out neither wind nor storm, a palace that crushes the brave ones defending it, a well whose lid collapses. 
pitch that defiles the one carrying it, a water skin that soaks the one who lifts it, limestone that crumbles in the stone wall, a battering ram that shatters in the land of the enemy, a shoe that bites the owner's foot. Which of your lovers have you loved forever? Which of your little shepherds has continued to please you? Come, let me name your lovers for you. And at least in theory, he seems to do that because there's a little bit of a gap here. Um, so notice, A, some absolutely gorgeous poetry here. Like, I love the, the sort of jilted lover descriptions, like the cooking fire that goes out in the cold, the battering ram that shatters in the land of the enemy. Like, if it wasn't for the fact that this is misogynistically awful, this would be some positively gorgeous poetry, full stop. And as it is, it's kind of hard to fault Gilgamesh for this. This is surprisingly insightful. Gilgamesh criticizes Ishtar because she is faithless. She is a goddess. He is a mortal. She will inevitably grow tired of him and inevitably do it when he needs her the most. Hence the descriptions. Why, what do you need with a water skin? You need it to hold water, but if it's not holding water and soaks you when you pick it up, then it's not very good as a water skin. Now is it? I need to cook and it goes out in the cold. I need to use the well, but the lid collapses blocking it. Like, all of the images that Gilgamesh is, is using here suggest, yeah, you're hot, you seem really awesome, obviously, like, you're crazy powerful, but A, I can't give you anything that would impress you, so I clearly can't keep you around, and B, you're gonna ditch me as soon as I need you, because you don't care about what I want. You're not in this for my interests, you're in it for yours. Now, the funny thing about this particular text, like, in my copy of this book, which I bought used, there's this great little note in the margin that, like, takes that whole passage and writes, Cruel to Ishtar. I really don't think the Babylonians see it that way. Um, they don't see this as cruelty. They see Gilgamesh as being pretty precocious here, pretty insightful here. Now, it is a little cruel, perhaps, to Ishtar, but that's complicated, too. Notice that Ishtar definitely fulfills what Gilgamesh is accusing her of. Like, here's Ishtar saying, Oh, Gilgamesh, be my lover. Give me the taste of your body. Would that you were my husband and I your wife. I'd order, order harnessed for you a chariot of lapis lazuli and gold. And then as soon as Gilgamesh drops this, she's like, Well, in that case, I'm going to, like, take the bull of heaven and attack you and hopefully kill you with it. Like, Ishtar turns on Gilgamesh really freaking fast here. And notice that, again, after they do successfully kill the Bull of Heaven and kind of shame Ishtar, Enkidu's response is to fling the thigh of the bull at her. Um, and Ishtar isn't done either. Ishtar, after all of this, gets all the gods and priestesses together, and now we're going to talk about making sure that Enkidu dies here. Ishtar, together with Enlil, become the defining sort of incident that causes Enkidu to die. So Ishtar does get some really negative press here in Tablet 6, especially. Gilgamesh insults her appropriately to her face. Enkidu chucks stuff at her. Her Bull of Heaven plot totally misfires, and the, the heroes totally overcome it. And then out of pure spite, she gets the gods together and kills Enkidu. Like, she is totally negative here. But it's also significant that for the Babylonian tradition, at least, when in fact Gilgamesh comes to the netherworld and meets with Siduri the barmaid in Tablet 10, Column 1, she's almost always identified with Ishtar. 
And the barmaid here isn't destructive, isn't duplicitous, isn't betraying him, but is in fact actually helpful. She does advise him not to go any further. Everyone does. She's not the only one who has suggested this at this point. Um, but instead, sort of like, uh, gives her him the tips he needs to get to the next step. Like, also, you need to, you know, pay attention to those stone thingies and the snake thingies in order to proceed to uh, Ursanabi and then Utnapishtim. Um, so, it's complicated. Like, I suspect that Ishtar, too, has this sort of two-facedness to her in the, the tradition that Simlechi Anuni is working with here. Just as Shamash has this sort of primordial early, early Sumerian identity that Simlechi Anuni expands to include Shamash the, the advisor, Shamash the brilliant, Shamash the wise, so Ishtar seems to have this primordial like helper woman barmaid persona in the underworld that is developed by Sinleki and Nuni into also having this kind of villainous, you know, treacherous, Hera-esque, jilted lover quality to it. So she's an interesting character here, especially because one of the primary texts we're dealing with, one of the ones that we have from Mesopotamian culture that is apparently a huge reference for this text is when Ishtar went into the underworld in the first place. Um, and there she's presented as loyal, as, you know, being heroic in her own right, as trying to outthink other gods and figures. Ishtar, too, is profoundly associated with the underworld. She is the one who overcame it, who went in and came out unscathed. So it's interesting that Simleki Anuni places this sort of significance on her, this emphasis on her. In some ways, she is an appropriate match for Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh, too, is the guy who goes into the underworld and comes out unscathed. He admittedly does not succeed in gaining immortality, but again, Ishtar started as a goddess, so what are you going to do? Um, but the two of them have a fairly parallel story to them. Um, in a sense, Gilgamesh is, is, in fact, being cruel here, not appreciating what Ishtar actually might have to offer to him. So it's tricky. Um, it's not exactly clear what Sinleki Anuni is doing with Ishtar here. Now, the other gods and goddesses I don't want to spend nearly as much time on. Um, they sort of just come into the story and are out of the story in, in pretty quick succession. Um, first and foremost, I want to talk about Enlil. Um, Enlil is bad news in this text, and is pretty bad news in most Sumerian, Mesopotamian, Babylonian texts. Enlil is almost always a villain in this text. Enlil is one of the sort of plotters who helps to kill Enkidu with the help of Ishtar. He's also very much the architect of humanity's destruction, according to the story of Utnapishtim. Um, but it's frequently emphasized by the text, and you can see it in here as well. Um, Enlil is less evil and more arbitrary. Um, he is random. There is something kind of pointlessly, arbitrarily just about the way that Enlil behaves. Um, and notice the, the passage where ultimately, like, Gilgamesh is is sort of saved and Enlil is, and Enkidu is ultimately killed. This is because Enlil basically concludes one of these two has to die, and I pick Enkidu because I said so. 
Um, which this is this is actually from like the older text. Like I'm borrowing it here. This is one of the places where I suspect that um, Sinlaki Anuni is in fact using the older Mesopotamian tradition. Um, it certainly fits with what he says and what clearly is in the text when he talks about Enlil with Utnapishtim. Um, Gardner, uh, the the ancient or ancient Near Eastern text relating to the Old Testament translation, um, literally has it. This is page 167 in Gardner's translation. Um, and Enkidu sent to Gilgamesh, Hear the dream I had last night. Anu, Enlil, Ea, and Heavenly Shamash were in council, and Anu said to Enlil, Because they have slain the bull of heaven, and whom Baba they have slain, for that reason, said Anu, the one of them who stripped the mountain of its cedar must die. But Enlil said, Enkidu must die. Gilgamesh shall not die. Then Heavenly Shamash answered Mighty Enlil, Was it not by my order that they killed the Bull of Heaven in Humbaba? Should now innocent Enkidu die? But Enlil turned in anger toward Heavenly Shamash, because, much like one of their comrades, you went down to them daily. So notice the interaction here. The gods are all hanging around. They're like, hey, they killed the Bull of Heaven. They killed Humbaba, who we appointed as protector of the cedars. You know, they have crossed us, in short. And Enlil's response is, okay, so we're going to kill Enkidu. And they're like, well, it could have been either one. And Enlil's like, nope, nope, it's going to be Enkidu. And Shamash is like, dude, we told them to do this. It's really not their fault. Enlil's like, shut up, Enkidu. Notice that Enlil is arbitrary. He picks randomly. There's no explanation for his reasoning here. But it is also final. Enlil is associated with that whole Greek fate tradition. And you'll see him hanging around with some of the underworld gods as well, especially Namtar, who I love. The, gold, the god of fate, who is also known as the Fate Cutter, which definitely sounds like, you know, the old Greek tradition with the Moirai and, you know, the three goddesses who measure out the thread of fate, who, you know, and who ultimately cut the, cut the thread of fate when your time on this planet is done. Enlil has this sort of quality, but it's even more inscrutable than it is in the Greeks. Enlil just makes decisions, and everybody has to live with it, weirdly enough. Now, the one exception to this seems to be Aeon, or Enki, as he's presented in many of the earlier Sumerian texts. Aeon doesn't show up very much in this text, but it's really significant that he is the guy who organizes Utnapishtim and the saving of human beings from the flood in the first place. Um, so if you jump ahead to tablet 11, it's significant to note that um, Enlil is the one who makes this, this big assessment that we're going to flood the universe. Um, so this is line 162 in tablet uh 11. So this would be column 4. Again, this is one of those that they number like all the lines the same uh, rather than resetting the numbers with every uh, column. From afar the Lady of the Gods came down. From the corpses she raised up the iridescent fly which Anu made for lovemaking. Gods, let me not forget this by the power of the lapis lazuli on my neck. These evil days I will remember and never forget. Gods, approach the offering but let Enlil not approach the offering. For without discussion in the assembly of the gods he brought on the flood and my people he numbered for slaughter. As soon as Enlil arrived, he spotted the ark. Enlil was furious. He was filled with the wrath of the gods, the Igigi. Has life breath escaped? No man was meant to live through the devastation. Ninurta shaped his mouth to speak, saying to warrior Enlil, Who but Ea can create things? Ea knows all the word. 
Aos shaped his mouth to speak, saying to warrior Enlil, You, shrewd one of the gods, warrior, how is it, how could you, without talking it through, send the flood? Punish the one who commits the crime. Punish the evildoer alone. Give him play so he is not cut free. Pull him in lest he be lost. Instead of your bringing on the flood, let lions rise up and diminish your people. Instead of your bringing on the flood, let the wolf rise up and cut the people low. Instead of your bringing on the flood, let famine be set up to throw down the land. Instead of your bringing on the flood, let plague rise up and strike down the people. I, I did not unhide the secret of the great gods. Utnapishtim, the overwise, a vision was shown to him. He heard the secret of the gods. Notice the dynamic here. Enlil has this, again, totally arbitrary, even cruel judgment, which he doesn't consult with anyone. He's going to flood the world, nobody's going to have anything to say about it, which rankles Ea. Now, Ea, as we've heard before from Utnapishtim, in fact, came up with a fairly clever way around the prohibitions here. If When Enlil says, you know, you're not allowed to tell any humans about it, Ea sets up this weird situation where he hides Utnapishtim behind a bent, like a wall of reeds, and Ea speaks to the wall of reeds and directs Utnapishtim what to do. Um, so this is in tablet 11, column 1, line 20. Their words he, Ea, repeats to the wall of reeds. Reed wall, reed wall, 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 reed wall, listen. Wall, pay attention. Man of Shurapak, son of Ubrarotutu, tear down the house, build an ark, abandon riches, seek life, scorn possessions, hold on to life, load the seed of every living thing into your ark, the boat that you will build. Let her measure be measured, let her breadth and length be equal, cover it with a roof as the abyss is covered. So notice, Ea sneaks around Enlil's, or Enlil's uh, demand here. Enlil says, hey, don't tell anybody we're going to flood the world to kill all human beings. Now it's like, okay, I have to warn the humans, um, but I can't tell them. So I guess I'll just tell this wall of reeds over here. And if somebody happens to be behind it, I guess they'll just overhear me. Whoops, what's a guy to do? So notice that Ea is the sneaky guy here. He is the trickster. He is on the one hand creative and creator, and everybody is, like addresses this. Ea knows all the word, Ninurta says. Um, on the other hand, Ea is just sneaky and tricky. He is one part Hermes and one part, I don't know, Hephaestus here. He makes stuff, he protects stuff, and he definitely goes out of his way to come up with clever schemes to get around the gods' restrictions here. And notice, he's even cleverer in the next section. Like, Utnapishtim is hiding behind the wall of reeds, listening to Ea, like, tell him that this horrible thing is going to happen, basically giving him instructions without actually addressing him. And Utnapishtim responds, My lord, what you have thus spoken I will do in praise of you. As for me, I will need to answer the city, the people, and the elders. In short, Utnapishtim is like, dude, it's fine for you to tell me to build this gigantic ark and stuff, but I'm going to get the permission from other people. How am I supposed to tell them, you know, without telling them? Because that's the whole rule here. Like, you're not allowed to tell people that this flood is happening, and Leo's going to be really ticked. Um, and Aob responds with what is probably one of the most complicated and fascinating passages in this whole text, something that both Gardner and Mater have a lot to say about. This is line 36 on tablet 11, column 1. Ea shaped his mouth, saying, saying to me, his servant, You, you may say this to them. 
Enlil hates me. Me. I cannot live in your city or turn my face toward the land which is Enlil's. I will go down to the abyss to live with Ea, my lord. He will make richness rain down on you, the choicest birds, the rarest fish. The land will have its fill of harvest riches. At dawn bread he will pour down on you, showers of wheat. Now, this is pretty metaphorical language, and it's definitely involving some pretty heavy-duty Sumerian-slash-Akkadian wordplay here. But the language of the bread will pour down on you, showers of wheat, bread, the word for bread can also be the word for darkness, and the word for wheat can also be the word for sorrow. So on the one hand, you know, here is... Unnapishtim being directed by Ea to tell all of the, the leaders of the community, hey, I've got to leave town. Enlil hates me. Now, the implication here is he hates me specifically. He hates me, Unnapishtim, when in fact Enlil hates everybody and wants to kill everybody. Um, but Unnapishtim, by sort of framing it in this way, avoids revealing Enlil's plan and thus ruining Ea's, you know, sort of secret plot here. Um, and he says, you know, if you get rid of me, you will be showered in riches, showered in bread and fish, i.e. darkness and misery. Um, the double entendre here suggests to the community that, yeah, if they get rid of Utnapishtim, everything will go well for them, where Utnapishtim is actually telling them the truth, you're going to be destroyed and there's no way around it, and I am going to be the only one that survives. He tells a very careful half-truth here, and it's Ea who is instructing him to say this. Ea is the one who comes out up with this sort of legalistic, linguistic uh, trickery in order to not tell a lie, but also not reveal the truth. Um, it's fantastic writing here. Like this is this is the sort of literary stuff that I really did want to get at, and why I did want to focus specifically on Sinlaki and Nuni. Um, rather than sort of, you know, get bogged down in the composite and, and not appreciate, you know, what Sidlecki and Nuni is actually doing here. Um, so what I need to emphasize is Ea is the trickster, and Ea is also protecting humans across the board. Now, if you've read the Enuma Elish, the, the Babylonian creation myth, which actually is probably later than this text, um, You'll notice that Ea has a big role to play there as well. Ea is the one who, you know, originally, like, gets rid of Apsu and who, you know, connives with the other gods so Tiamat doesn't destroy them. Um, but Ea is also very much phased out when Marduk takes over. You'll also notice that Marduk doesn't show up in this text. That's because, you know, just as Ea's ascendant you know, a little bit ascendant here, Marduk is ultimately going to supplant him in, in future generations in the, the Babylonian mythology, or so it would seem. Um, but it's worth noticing what Ai has to do here, and how Ai's trickery, how his intellect, manages to save literally everyone in this particular case. Um, which brings me to the last couple of things I want to talk about here. Like, again, I was hoping to talk about, like, themes broadly speaking, um, but I think we've covered most of the ones that I wanted to talk about. The main one that I do want to address here is kind of the main one in this text, which somehow hasn't been something we've managed to concentrate on a whole heck of a lot. Like, we talked quite a bit about Gilgamesh and the whole immortality search and how, whether or not it was hubris to try and get it and how close he actually came to getting it. Um, 
And as much as that is one of the primary themes here, along with that, you know, civilized versus savagery thing that we talked about when we got into Enkidu, notice that, like the Homeric epics, this text is actually pretty friggin' explicit about what its ultimate theme is. You go back to Tablet 1, Column 1, and notice the first line in this text, and it tells us what the real thing to focus on here actually is. The one who saw the abyss, I will make the land know. Of him who knew all, let me tell the whole story. In the same way, as the Lord of Wisdom, he who knew everything, Gilgamesh, who saw things secret, opened the place hidden, and carried back word of the time before the flood. He traveled the road, exhausted, in pain, and cut his works into a stone tablet. He ordered built the walls of Uruk of the Sheepfold, the walls of Holy Ayana, who, by the way, is Ishtar again, Stainless sanctuary, observe its walls, whose upper helm is like bronze. Behold its inner wall, which no work can equal. And notice that many of these lines are repeated at the very end of Tablet 11. Again, that sort of typical ending of the, the, the passage here. Um, we get this description again of, you know, like Uruk and, and the sheepfold and, and, you know, Gilgamesh as the, the wall builder and all of this. Um, so, what I want to emphasize is, for the purposes of this text, the key here, the key message, the key story that is being told, is the story of how Gilgamesh got this secret knowledge. How he was the one who saw the abyss, as it's translated by John Gardner. Um, so, first off, we got to talk about the abyss. Like... Abyss is the term that Gardner uses, which may be a little bit on the negative side here. Um, the translation by uh, Ben Foster in the, the Norton Critical Edition is uh, he was the one who saw the wellspring. Um, in either case, the emphasis is very much that this is the place that all things come from. As much as we've been talking about the underworld or the netherworld here, and as much as that is a different term in its own right, we also need to recognize that we need to associate the underworld, the netherworld, the underground with the place of origin in the Babylonian tradition. Gilgamesh goes beyond the edge of the universe. He travels into the underworld, which is also where everything begins. It is the origin of the universe. And we see this with Utnapishtim as well. Remember, Utnapishtim tells everybody, hey, I'm going to go be with my lord Ea, in the underworld, at the beginning of all things. Um, so Gilgamesh's journey is a journey, essentially, at least for Sinleki Anuni, of knowledge, of discovery. And it is frequently emphasized in the Babylonian tradition overall, like even in the old Sumerian texts as well as here, that the universe is divided into a pre-flood and post-flood universe. Like, much as, you know, Christian and, and Jewish theology very much has a place for, you know, the world before the flood and the world after the flood, it is way more comparable to before the fall and after the fall here. Um, the flood is as much a marker of the change in the universe for the Babylonians as the fall from grace is for Christian and Jewish theology. And notice, again, in that speech that I read from Utnapishtim, or uh, from Utnapishtim, 
where Ai is talking to Enlil, that emphasis, you know, instead of bringing on the flood, let lions rise up. Instead of bringing on the flood, let the wolf rise up. Let famine rise up. Let plague rise up. What and what Ai emphasizes to Enlil in that speech is a radical transformation. Once upon a time, the world was in one way, and people were judged collectively. When Enlil decides people suck, I, he decides, I will flood the world and destroy everyone, no exceptions, no survivors. Udnapishtim is saved by Ea, by a transgression of a kind, but a transgression of God against God, not of human against God. And what Ea suggests as the new paradigm is we're not going to punish the humans collectively. We're not going to either wipe them out or let them all survive and nothing in between. Instead, we're going to punish them on an individual case-by-case -case basis. Punish the one who commits the crime. Punish the evildoer alone. Give him play so he is not cut free. Pull him in lest he be lost. And from now on, when we do have giant judgments to portray, we're going to do lions and wolves and famines and plagues, not giant floods that kill everybody. So we live in a world which originally was uncivilized, savage, just as Enkidu is uncivilized and savage, just as you know Gilgamesh becomes uncivilized and savage in his search across the world for the for the underworld when he too ranged across the wilderness but that savagery comes from that pre-diluvian that pre-flood universe where the world didn't make sense where humans were punished arbitrarily where Enlil would come up with snap judgments and then execute them without consulting any of the other gods it was lawless it was chaotic it was unpredictable it was dangerous but since the flood things have changed since the Flood, there are still a lot of bad things in the world. Perhaps more bad things than there were before. The flood, the famine, the wolf, the lion, the plague. These are all terrible things that people have to deal with that they presumably didn't have to deal with before this Flood happened. But these are consistent. These are predictable. These behave in a way that we can contend with. And civilization is an appropriate match for these threats. The wolves are coming, let's band together, raise an army, as Gilgamesh often does, and fight them back. There's a plague happening, well perhaps we should lock down, pray to the gods, and prevent ourselves from being wiped out by this. There are still great dangers in this world, maybe even greater dangers than existed before, but we don't have to worry about being annihilated on the throw of a die. We don't have to worry about Enlil showing up and being like, I feel like killing everybody today. Who's going to stop me? I'm Enlil. No, we don't have that anymore. But importantly, Gilgamesh, in searching for the secret to his own immortality, trying to beat his mortal condition, finds out why he can't. Because once upon a time, you could, and it was actually worse. Utnapishtim didn't have a good life. Utnapishtim has only survived as an exception. Literally all of the other people who were alive when Utnapishtim was alive are dead now. Anyone who lived before the flood was wiped out in a peak of the gods. But now you are protected from that. And the price you pay is your mortality. 
So Gilgamesh comes back, and he's got a couple of gifts. He's got some stuff from Utnapishtim. He's got this grand knowledge of the way things were once upon a time. He's got this fancy plant, which will allow him to possess it theoretically eternal youth so long as the plant survives. Admittedly, he loses the plant, which sucks. But at the end of the day, the message here is, yeah, you can't overcome your mortality, but notice what you get as a result. Notice all the advantages of the civilization that we talked about with Enkidu when Shamash was, was sort of chiding him for insulting the prostitute. There's a lot of cool stuff happening as a result of civilization, which is accompanied by mortality. Yeah, there are a lot of dangers. Yes, people are going to die. Yes, sometimes it's going to be arbitrary, and sometimes it's going to be stupid, and sometimes we're going to hate it. But at the end of the day, think of all the good things that happen. Think about the honor. Think about the people who will mourn you after you are gone. Think about your family. Think about the friendships, like Gilgamesh and Enkidu, forged over their common interests and making them capable of doing heroic things. Gilgamesh saw why that is. He sees the value of civilization, of his situation, in addition to its dangers. He fails at his quest. He fails to become immortal. But he sees why mortality may be necessary. Why things are the way they are. And he's the only one who does. He is the one who comes back from the netherworld who is the last person who gets to see the other side of the River of the Dead, who gets to see Utnapishtim in the place where Shamash rises. And notice, it's emphasized, he comes back and builds the wall. As much as Gilgamesh fails to become immortal, the message, the wisdom that he has gained, becomes permanent. He inscribes it on the wall. According to legend, the story of Utnapishtim and the story of Gilgamesh was once inscribed on the walls of the city of Uruk. So, he succeeds. He comes back, he is a successful king, and more than literally anyone else in the entire history of the universe at this point, or at least the, the history of the human race, he does come close to immortality. We still talk about him 5,000 years after he was alive. Like, I've said about Achilles, you know, the poets still sing of Achilles, therefore he is immortal. That goes triple for Gilgamesh, because he's like twice as old. Um, so Gilgamesh, in some sense, does succeed. In some sense, Gilgamesh does achieve his immortality. He does communicate this wisdom, and it proceeds from generation to generation. So once again, he succeeds. This is the overall story here. That time that Gilgamesh went into the underworld and got the knowledge of the way that humans behave in a way that we didn't have before. And I think that's why... Sitlaki Anuni includes Tablet 12 as well. Like, as much as there have been a lot of scholars sort of debating and questioning, like, what the heck is Tablet 12 doing here? It clearly doesn't have anything to do with the main thrust of the story. It even contradicts the story in Tablet 6 and 7 about how, Gil how Enkidu dies. Notice that in Tablet 12, as, you know, or as it's found in, you know, Gilgamesh Enkidu in the Underworld uh, in the myth, Enkidu gives more wisdom to Gilgamesh from the underworld. And as much as this doesn't fit with the story, the wisdom does. If this is a book about getting wisdom from the underworld, about seeing the secrets of the gods in the place where they dwell, when Enkidu starts telling Gilgamesh, you know, what is the fate of all of these people? What is the fate of the person with seven children? What is the fate of the person with six children? And so on and so forth. 
that's the secret. That's the wisdom. And of course it's going to be included, because that's the whole reason why Gilgamesh went to the underworld in the first place. Like, for Gilgamesh to come back and for us to only care about the journey and not the wisdom that he gained along the way would be really foolish on our part. The story is the wisdom, and the story includes this extra wisdom. Or at least, that's how I read Sinlechia Nuni's take on it. So, that's the Gilgamesh, as I understand it. That's what the whole story is about, start to finish. There Obviously, many scholars are going to disagree with me on this, and that's fine. They're smarter than I am. They've probably read the original Sumerian and, and have a better sense of the context here. Remember, I've only studied this stuff for a week, but you want my take, and that's what I've come up with. Um, this is, again, a great epic in, a, in many ways, fragmentary though it is. It's a pain in the butt to read if you don't have a contemporary translation that is composited from a number of different sources, but it is also worthwhile looking at this from the perspective of one particular source, what one particular author has in mind, and what they are prioritizing, even if we disagree with it as part of the same story or not. Um, so that's hence why I'm like navigating between these two sort of scholarly assumptions. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this discussion. I certainly learned a lot, and I really enjoyed talking about it and studying this stuff. Um, I imagine that in future mythology classes, we'll be reading more of the Gilgamesh as a consequence. Like, anytime that I get this excited about something, you can bet it'll show up in my classes at some point. Um, I look forward to reading more versions of the Epic of Gilgamesh, looking through all the Norton critical apparatus and stuff. Uh, but we're going to call it here. Um, I hope that you enjoyed this. I hope that you've learned a lot about Mesopotamian culture, about Gilgamesh specifically, and about all the other crazy stuff that's involved in trying to translate these texts from, you know, broken rocks into a fancy, you know, hardbound edition or whatever. Um, for next week, we should start it on the ethics classes, so stay tuned for that. I look forward to talking about them with you soon. Hey, thanks for listening. I look forward to having some new content out next week for you. And in the meantime, I highly recommend that you check out my other projects on professorkozlowski.wordpress.com, which is the sort of center for all of the things I'm doing online these days. Um, and please, if you like this, share it, subscribe to it, send it out, get everybody to know that I'm making lectures and, and talking about something that you're interested in. Um, the more listeners I have, the more people I have following me, the better chance there is that I'll be able to continue doing this. And if you can, please consider contributing to my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Professor Kozlowski. Um, I've already got a few patrons. We are up and running. Um, but the more money I'm making through this project, the more I can devote my time and energy to my projects online, and the less I have to worry about things like rent and feeding myself. Um, so please, keep, keep listening, keep sharing, keep subscribing, and as much as you can, keep contributing. Uh, I'll see you soon.